global crisis. Bible prophecy. Health and preparedness. You're just in time. 11th Hour Dispatch. Father in heaven, we pray for your Holy Spirit right now to illuminate your word that we might understand the truth. Even as uncomfortable as it is sometimes to understand truths that surprise us, we know that you love us enough to give us truth unadulterated. And we do ask for that now. Give us hearts to receive whatever it is you will show us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Welcome to 11th Hour Dispatch. I'm Scott Ritzema, your host for another in the series of prophecy sessions. Today is one that I've been looking forward to for quite some time. Whenever people hear of Bible prophecy, one of the first words out of people's mouths or the number one associations with prophecy is Antichrist. And we are going to study and identify that power, which is predicted in the Bible in Daniel 7, in Revelation 13, in 2 Thessalonians 2, in a number of different passages by various different names. He's referred to as the beast, the Antichrist. We also read the man of sin or lawless one. Also, the little horn power of Daniel 7. All describing the same entity, the same institution, the same Antichrist, beast, little horn power. And so we're going to study Daniel 7 to try to understand. This is the one that has the most detail about this power that would would arise upon the earth as the Antichrist or the beast power. And in Daniel 7, verse 23 and verse 17, it makes very clear that a beast in Bible prophecy represents a kingdom. And so we're going to study in Daniel 7 four beasts, four successive kingdoms that were to arise in Daniel's day. And these four will sound familiar for those who were listening to the broadcast on Daniel 2. In Daniel 2, he goes through the statue of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, and he says, Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold. And then this statue had various metals all the way down. He says, then there's chest and arms of silver, and that represents the kingdom that comes after you. And then a third kingdom of bronze, and then a fourth kingdom that the the legs of the statue were made of iron. So there are four kingdoms coming, four empires or nations that would come. One of them was already in existence at the time that Daniel was speaking to Nebuchadnezzar. He said, you, Babylon, are the head of gold. After you will come another and another and another. So all you need to do is look at world history and you can identify who these kingdoms or nations or empires were. Babylonian Empire would be the first of the four, and then immediately after the Babylonians fell in the year 539 BC, the Medo-Persian Empire arose. They ruled for a couple of hundred years and were succeeded by the Greek Empire, who was then overcome by the Roman Empire. And those are the four ancient empires that ruled the ancient world. Interestingly, the Daniel 2 story, the Daniel 2 prophecy said that Rome would not be conquered, but would be divided and would remain divided until the second coming of Christ. So we have still not seen 
a reconstituting of the ancient Roman Empire. Europe today is the product of the division of Rome in 476 AD, where Rome was not conquered from the outside, but divided and fizzled and fractured from within. So Daniel 7 is going to repeat those four and give more information. So let's begin with the prophecy in Daniel 7 with Daniel's dream. It says, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream. And in this prophetic dream that Daniel had, it says in verse 2, he says, I saw in my visions by night, and behold, four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I watched till its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man, and a man's heart was given to it. Now this is quite astounding that this first beast would be pictured as a lion, because what was the first kingdom in Daniel 2? Nebuchadnezzar, you are this head of gold. Babylon represents the first kingdom of four. Well, the lion is the exact symbol of ancient Babylon. At the Ishtar Gate... In ancient Babylon, the, the, the greatest and most wealthy city in the world at the time, was pictured sta statues of lions in a long processional way. The most important sites in ancient Babylon was lined with lion images on the walls. So this is quite fitting that the first beast, Babylon, would be described as being a lion. But then in verse 3, it says, and suddenly another beast. So this is sequential. He's going to say suddenly another one, and after this, another one, and after this, another one. Four of them, just like Daniel 2. This is repeating Daniel 2, so this is not new information. But it is a little bit more detailed. He says with this second one, was like a bear in verse 5. And it was raised up on one side and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And they, they said thus to it, arise, devour much flesh. So this is the second empire that follows Babylon. It devours much flesh, including three ribs in its mouth. And it's raised up on one side. So there's a two-ness to this, this, this beast. There's, there's something about one side being higher than the other. Well, this all fits exactly with, Earth, with world history. Because the beast, the, the nation, the empire that succeeded the Babylonians, that conquered the Babylonians, was the Medo-Persian Empire. And guess what? There's two there, Medes and Persians. Persians being stronger than the Medes. And this imperial conquest took captive and destroyed three nations as the Medo-Persians came to power. Those three nations were the nations of Lydia, Egypt, and of course, Babylon itself. So the Medo-Persian Empire conquered three and was raised up on one side with the Persians being stronger Quite a nice fit with the prophecies. You think this was inspired or what? Verse 6. After this, I looked and there was another, like a leopard. So this is the third. And a, this leopard had on its back four wings of a bird. Now, isn't that interesting? This, this denotes speed, the fastest animal, plus wings. Well, guess what empire followed the Medo-Persian Empire? This third empire was the Greek Empire and was the fastest conquering empire in history, this would be Alexander the Great. And of course, the rest of the verse says that the beast also had four heads. 
Now, why four? Well, Alexander, after he had finished his conquest, died at a young age, and, the, and he had not appointed a successor. And so they asked him, reportedly, who do you leave your empire to? And he reportedly said, to the strongest. So the four generals of Alexander the Great carved up this great territory that was becoming the Greek Empire, and it was divided into four. You can look at maps of the division of four territories that were the consolidated Greek Empire, each ruled by one of, of uh, Alexander's four generals. So how many heads were on that leopard? It was four. Amazing how hundreds of years before Alexander, God knew and inspired this prophecy. I find that to be so beautiful, so affirming of the word of God. It just validates the truth of the scriptures. Now then, it says after this in verse 7, and you already know what empire comes after the Greeks, so you know who this is already before we say anything, but it's interesting, the description. It says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible and exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. Well, isn't that something? The legs of iron in Daniel 2 represented Rome, the iron monarchy of Rome, the strongest empire in history. It says it was exceedingly strong. It had iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, trampling the residue with its feet. And it was different from all the other beasts that were before it. And then it says it had 10 horns. Now in Daniel 7, verse 24, Daniel gets an explanation of this prophecy and it says the ten horns are ten kings who shall arise from this kingdom. Which, of course, when you study the history of the Roman Empire, they were not conquered from the outside but fizzled into ten kingdoms in 476 AD. Now, isn't that something? How well this prophecy fits hundreds and hundreds of years before the time of the fall of Rome. This would be like 800 to 1,000 years before the time of the fall of Rome. Now, the real reason we're going to Daniel 7 is this next part here. That was all review. But what you're about to see in verse 8 is the power that we're identifying in this session. And that power is known by various names, the Antichrist, the beast power, etc. Here he is called a little horn. And in verse 8 it says, I was considering the horns, so there were ten horns of the former Roman Empire, the ten kingdoms of divided Rome or Europe. He says, I was considering those ten horns, and there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. And there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking pompous words. Now, as you study on in the prophecy, you see that this little horn is doing all the things that the beast of Revelation 13 does. He speaks pompous words or blasphemous words. He persecutes and makes war against the saints. So this is the same entity, the same power. He even is said to, to rule for the exact same time period and length of time as the beast of Revelation 13. Different symbolism, same power, same entity, same nation, whatever you want to call it. It's the little horn in this passage. Now I want to make a list of characteristics of this power. 
so that we can make sure from the history and from the present world we live in today, when comparing it with Bible prophecy to use a strictly Bible-based interpretation of the prophecies, because there's a million ideas out there about who the Antichrist power is, who this little horn is, and as many different interpretations as there are prophecy gurus. And we don't want to just be prophecy experts who know all the answers and have the wise interpretations. I just want to derive my interpretation from the Bible and the Bible alone. And it's so simple. What we're about to see regarding the identity of the little horn power has been known for a long time. This is nothing novel or new that I'm going to reveal. This used to be the consensus view within Christianity. And what you hear, you're going to say, well, yeah, that's the only possible identity of the little horn power after you see these identifiers. So we're going to read through the rest of Daniel 7, portions of it, the portions that speak of this little horn power. There's more ink devoted to this power than to all the other four beasts combined. This is very important to Daniel, and it should be very important to us because God is giving us a warning. Watch out for the rise of this antichrist power that will supplant Christ and sit in the place of God in 2 Thessalonians 2. We'll be back. You're listening to 11th Hour Dispatch with author, teacher, and speaker Scott Ritzmer. For more programs and information, visit 11thHourDispatch.com. Most parents send their children to public schools with the best of intentions. But now more than ever, parents are waking up to the brainwashing that is taking place in today's indoctrination centers, also known as public schools. But it's even worse than merely false worldviews. Did you know that according to the U.S. Department of Education, Literally 10% of public school children have been targets of unwanted sexual attention by school employees. It's time to wake up, to come apart and be separate, saith the Lord. The DVD series is called Schooled, the deliberate agenda to reduce individuality, destroy intelligence, and re-engineer society. In Schooled, You'll hear it straight from the mouths of the founders of modern schooling themselves. They're quite proud of it. Visit 11thHourDispatch.com and use promo code RADIO for a reduced suggested donation rate. Wonderful, merciful Savior, precious Redeemer and friend, who would have thought that a of men Oh, you rescue the souls of men And we're back studying Daniel 7 The Little Horn Power Let's get right back into it Daniel says, I was considering the horns and there was another horn a little one So there's one characteristic or identifier of this power that this nation will not be a vast, large territorial empire, but a small nation. Remember Daniel 7, verse 24, says that horns represent kingdoms. So this is a 
nation of some kind. This is a king, a power of some kind, but it's little. It's a little power. It says that this little horn came up among the other ten. So there's a second identifier. You know who the little horn power is, or the beast power, the Antichrist, when you see a small nation arising up in divided Rome or Western Europe. You probably already know who it is, but let's see what else it says. It says, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. So when this entity comes to power in Europe, it will be defeating three of the former tribes or nations of divided Rome. It says he subdued three kings in the verse later in verse 25. 24. It says ten ho- the ten horns are ten kings who shall arise from this kingdom and another shall arise after them. So there's another identifier. When did the Roman Empire fizzle into the division of Rome? That would be 476 AD. This little horn arises after them, it says. So he's small. He's going to arise in Western Europe after 476 AD, and he will pluck up three horns, or as it says in Daniel 7.24, he shall subdue three kings. Reading on, it says, And in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking pompous words. Well, there's two identifiers for you right there. He is, he's got eyes and mouth of a man. So when you imagine or think of this power, a man is prominent in this power. And he has a mouth speaking pompous words. Revelation 13 calls it blasphemous words. So this is a religious power. He's not merely saying secular things. He is saying religious blasphemous things. In verse 25, it says that he shall persecute the saints of the Most High And it also says that he shall intend to change times and law. Now, of course, that again must be religious because every ruler changes the secular laws. That's what it means to be king is you set the laws. So this wouldn't be noteworthy. It wouldn't be worth mentioning that he's going to make some changes in the law of the land. No, that always happens. This is an attack upon God. He's persecuting the saints. He's speaking pompous words. He's intending to change times and laws of God. And then it says that in verse 25, that he will, that the saints will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. Now, what does that mean? A time, times, and half a time. Well, it says when Nebuchadnezzar was banished and and, and given a timeout, if you will, to think about his evil ways and go and live like a wild beast out in the wilderness, it says that, that seven times passed over him. That meant seven years. He spent seven years in that state before he was converted. So a time is a year. Now this one says a time, times, and half a time will be the length of period of time period that this power will rule and persecute the saints for. A time, times, and half a time. Well, a time is a year. Times would then be two years. 
half a time would then be half of a year. And the Bible states this time period multiple times. A a year plus two years plus half a year would be three and a half years. Also known in the Bible as 42 months. And also known as 1,260 days. Now, interestingly, this time period is mentioned in Daniel and Revelation exactly seven times. Now, that is symbolic. That is God's way of saying, this is a complete number. It's referenced seven times. Pay attention to it. Divinely focused upon in Daniel and Revelation. A 1,260-day time period, also known as a three and a half year time period or a 42 month time period. Now, 1,260 days is not a very long period of time. This is not, that's like, yeah, that's three and a half literal years that this power rules for and oppresses the saints, and that's it. I mean, empires don't rise and fall in a couple of years. I mean, even a president's term is at least four. And so that's in a republic. We're talking about monarchies here. So this is not 1,260 days. These are prophetic days. Do you remember when we studied Daniel 9 and we saw how it predicted that in 483, quote, days, the Messiah would come? Well, the Messiah didn't come 483 days later. The Messiah did come, though. Jesus' first coming came exactly 483 years later. So it proves this day-to-year principle. A day in Bible prophecy refers to a literal year. So this last identifier is saying that the Antichrist will rule for 1,260 years. That he will arise in Western Europe after 476 AD as a small kingdom, a small power, a small government. That he will subdue three kings as he rises to power. That there will be a prominent man at the forefront. That it will be a religious power blaspheming God. Which, by the way, in the Bible, blasphemy is defined as claiming to be God. And it's also defined as claiming to be able to forgive sins and if you're not God. Second Thessalonians 2, by the way, says that this power will place himself within the church Within the temple is what it says. And in the New Testament, the temple is the church. Ephesians talks about that. Peter talks about that. It says it all over the place in the New Testament that we are living stones being built up as a holy temple. We, the people of God, are the church, the Christians. And it says that this man of sin, the lawless one, will actually place himself within the temple of God, the New Testament meaning the church of God, claiming to be God. That's blasphemy right there. And that he would persecute Christians, that he would try to change the times and laws of God, and that he would rule for exactly 1,260 years. And then Revelation 13 says that he receives a deadly wound, but then he comes back in the last days. Okay, so I think you've got the picture, first of all, what Antichrist is not. Antichrist is not some guy who arises in the future after Christians are secretly taken out of the world in a secret second coming of Jesus. And then this guy comes and rules from the United Nations as this secular power for seven years. None of that is in the Bible. That's all fiction. And it's entertaining fiction. There's great books and movies on that, but it's not biblical. 
What it says in the Bible is he's going to rule for 1,260 years and take power sometime after 476 AD. And it says he's going to do all these things, arise in Western Europe. He's going to be a religio-political power, ruling from a small territory, have a prominent man at its head, and it will blaspheme God, claiming to forgive sins and claiming to have the power of God. And he will try to change the law of God. I think you know very clearly what power this is. And this is not something that's my opinion or anybody's opinion. It was unanimously held by the Protestant reformers from Martin Luther to John Calvin to John Knox, all the way down to Roger Williams, the founder of the First Baptist Church on American soil, John Wesley, the father of the Methodists, Lutheran, Calvinist, John Knox, the Presbyterian. All these Protestant groups back in the day understood that the Vatican, the Roman church state, Papal Rome, the papacy, whatever you want to call this power that arose as a small kingdom, uprooted three kings, by the way, in its rise to power in, here's the year for you, 538 AD. In 538 AD, which is shortly after the dividing of Rome in 476 AD, right on time, this power arose as a religious power. A small kingdom, Vatican City is still the smallest sovereign nation on planet Earth today. That it arose among the kingdoms of divided Rome, so it arose in Europe, in Western Europe, namely in Italy. That three tribal nations in Europe at the time were resisting papal declarations, the Heruli, the Ostrogoths, and the Vandals. They were uprooted by the papal armies. Every single one of these identifiers fits only one kingdom, and that is Vatican City, the papacy. And of course, he has a prominent man at the forefront and the head of this institution as the pope, various popes, not any individual particular pope. This is not meant to be a slam on anybody who believes in Jorge Bergoglio, the current pope of Rome. He seems like a nice man and You know, this is not about individuals. This is about systems. This is about a power structure. This is not about my friends who happen to be Roman Catholic and their upbringing and culture and beliefs. This is about the papacy and its blasphemous claims to have the power. Listen to this from Pope Leo VIII, the 13th, in 1890. It says the supreme teacher in the church is the Roman pontiff. Union of minds, therefore, requires, together with a perfect accord in the one faith, complete submission and obedience to the will of the church and to the Roman pontiff as to God himself. You obey the pontiff as you obey God. Apostolic letter of Pope Leo the Thirteenth, June 20, 1894, says, We hold upon this earth the place of God Almighty. If that's not blasphemous... I don't know what is. If that's not pompous words, I don't know what is. And of course, we know from the history that the seventh day Sabbath is in the Bible and that in the catechisms of the Roman Catholic teachings today, it says, question, which day is the Sabbath? Answer, Saturday is the Sabbath. Question, why then do we observe Sunday instead of Saturday? Answer, because we changed the day. They're very clear on this issue, and we're going to study that more in the future. 
But when it says that the Antichrist would try to change times and laws of God, the very time laws, the law in the Ten Commandments about time. So folks, the Bible is revealing and unveiling this before our eyes so that we would turn our eyes upon Jesus, so that we would behold only Christ, and that we would look to no man as a mediator between us and God to replace Christ. Jesus is that one mediator. Look only to him today. See you next time. To financially support this broadcast, visit 11thHourDispatch.com. Here's Scott Ritzema with another final minute message. It says in Isaiah that in our affliction, God is afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. So we get peace, he gets chastisement. By his wounds, we are healed. We get joy, he gets pain. This is called grace. This is called mercy. This is called self-sacrificing love. A selfish God would say, I'm not going to do that for these ungrateful enemies of mine. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Don't forget that. Next time you might say, God, why would you? How could you? He's asking that question to us. We're the ones that have rebelled against his perfect love. He died for us. He's proven his goodness. Brought to you by Belt of Truth Ministries.org.